But we're going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 25. I'm going to read that passage aloud, and then we're going to read together these passages we've been memorizing as a congregation. Today we begin a new one, uh, Romans 5, 6 through 10. Uh, We'll do that for the next uh, probably six weeks, and you'll see we'll come to this passage in two weeks. Significant passage in the book of Romans. So we're going to read that one together as a congregation. But let me ask you if you're able, if you would please stand. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 4, 18 through 25. You can follow in your own Bibles or in your bulletins. This is the word of the Lord. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now let's read together Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Amen. Would you please be seated? Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us through the mouth of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for this specific passage this morning and how it speaks of the nature of saving faith. Would you, as we work through it this morning, would you, by your Holy Spirit, work among us to strengthen our faith? We are often weak and wavering in our faith. We confess, Lord, that we need you and we ask that you would work to strengthen that faith. Would you grow it in us that we would trust your promises and that we would rest upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this privilege. Uh, We ask that you would be at work here this morning, uh, glorifying yourself through the preaching of your word. It is in Jesus' name that we ask all of this. Amen. Well, the last few years, I've been thinking about, uh, about beliefs. You don't have to laugh in my picture yet. Um, I've been thinking about beliefs, how, how beliefs are formed and how uh, uh, human beings come to believe something or another. I think the, the last few years especially 
we've seen this kind of development or concern about uh, polarizing beliefs and extreme beliefs and, and how do people come to believe a certain idea that they once didn't believe but they now hold to be dear and, and very uh, crucial to their own identity. And so as I've been exploring this idea, how are beliefs formed and why do we believe certain things, I came across this scientific journal. It was, it's called the, the article was called The Biochemistry of Belief. It wasn't written from a Christian perspective. I don't even think the author was Christian, but it's very interesting what he said about belief. I want to read this to you, and then I'd like to talk about how this impacts the passage this morning. This is the biochemistry of belief. It is the introduction to this article. It says this, Beliefs are basically the guiding principles in life that provide direction and meaning in life. Beliefs are the preset, organized filters to our perceptions of the world. They originate from what we hear and we keep on hearing from others ever since we were children and even before that. The sources of beliefs include environment, events, knowledge, past experiences, visualization, and the like. Beliefs are a choice. We have the power to choose our beliefs. Our beliefs then become our reality. That's the, the, the scientific sort of biochemistry of belief that would be Sort of as you evaluate the science, that's how a human being comes to believe something. And I want to summarize that. I want to draw it in my picture because I think, again, it would be uh, crucial for our understanding of the passage this morning. What the author was saying is that, that in the mind of every human being, there's a formulation of belief. There's a cognitive, evaluative process that goes on where we form beliefs that we, we look at the rest of the world through, that we evaluate our experience. But the author was saying that these things are formed primarily through the senses, that through our senses, our, our seeing, and the, and the author especially mentioned our hearing, but we could also talk about the things we smell and we taste and we feel, that there's an evaluation of all of the things that we experience in this life, okay? And, and you might think of a few things, right? The, the hearing of music or the, the looking at or the feeling of the heat of the sun or maybe the, the smell of a beautiful flower, okay? These are some of the things that we might experience in life that through our senses, we experience the world, and as we experience enough, and as those things begin to compound, we take those experiences through the perception of our senses, and we begin to formulate what the author is saying is beliefs. We begin to, to make our own beliefs about the world, and he added there at the end, beliefs can be changed. You, you have the choice to believe what you will. But this is essentially the process that's being described. And as we know through human experience, this is kind of how we, we make a lot of our decisions, right? We're perceiving, we're receiving information. Uh, we are uh, sort of the uh, recipients of all of the world around us, and we use those things to make decisions. Now, let me ask you another question. Maybe this is more complicated here. Is this also the way that we come to faith in Jesus Christ? Is, is that the way that faith in Christ works? And I, I'm asking you to think about that because I believe at first blush you might say, yeah, that's kind of how faith in Christ works. But in another sense, you might say, no, wait a second, there's something not quite right about that. I'll tell you one of the things that might not sit well with you. This has been a popular argument if you've been following sort of the cultural Marxist movements, okay? The critique of the American church goes something like this. You American Christians, you don't realize you are just the victim of your circumstance, okay? You have perceive things because you have grown up in an environment, in a, uh, a Western sort of affluent culture, 
uh, where your parents and your grandparents and their grandparents all came out of a Christian tradition. And so you don't realize, but you are simply perceiving these things and making conclusions, right? So how dare you say that your belief system is exclusive, that, that Jesus Christ is the only way, because everyone who ever has any belief comes to it in the same way. You are simply the product of your environment, okay? You've heard that argument before. You see, that's why when we think about the way that beliefs are formed, that's why faith in Christ is different, okay? The Apostle Paul is going to make this argument. Faith in Christ is not the same as the way that other beliefs are formed in life, okay? Or it's not the same as the way that we evaluate the rest of life. Paul's going to make that argument here this morning, and so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about three things uh, concerning uh, the nature of faith. Actually, the first point is the nature of saving faith. And, and we've read about faith in Romans so far, but we haven't had the opportunity really to stop and to talk about what is saving faith, okay? And I, I say saving faith because I want to distinguish the word faith is just a sort of general generic term these days. We're talking about saving faith in Jesus Christ, okay? Is it different than any other way we come to believe anything in the world? And I think you'll see this morning that Paul's going to make the argument that it is, but we'll get there. So first of all, I'm going to write the three points here. First of all, the nature of saving faith. What is is the nature of saving faith? I I think we can see that beginning in verse 18, so I want to highlight those, those verses for you. Look at what verse 18 says, in hope... He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. If that's the first time you're reading verse 18, you're probably thinking, what in the world is Paul talking about? It's a very peculiar phrase, isn't it, that begins that passage. In hope, he believed against hope. And it's actually quite interesting. In the Greek, it doesn't get any more clear. It's actually even more confusing. Uh, Literally, the the two words for hope are the same words, and, and it just says, against hope, he hoped. And you're kind of like, what does that mean? Against hope, he hoped. We, we see that Paul's working out this idea that there was a hopelessness, and in the midst of hopelessness, Abraham hoped, okay? And that's part of what's going on here. But there's another dynamic. This, this phrase, against hope, he, he hoped, or uh, he had faith and hope against hope, that phrase is, is actually beginning to capture the nature of saving faith. Uh, one author who was preaching on this passage 1,800 years ago, said this, the meaning of this text is very simple. It was against man's hope and the hope which is from God, okay? That's essentially what verse 18 is meaning. As Paul's writing this, he's saying, listen, Abraham is hoping against the the human hope and the hope of God, right? Two different hopes are being distinguished here. This is what Paul's moving through chapter 4 to begin to delineate to the Roman Christians. He's saying, I want to be clear with you, there are two different types of hope. There is the natural hope in this world, and then there's the hope that is in God. And these are two very different things. Don't get them confused. So let's just talk about those two different things really quick. First of all, what is the, what is the natural human hope? What is the hope that we talk about, you know, that humanity kind of has the, the phrase hope? What does that hope look like? Well, the hope, as the Bible talks about it, and, and the epistle to the Romans talks about it, that hope is a hope that sort of, it is based upon our, our predispositions, our inclinations, and our experience of life, right? And so this is the type of human hope where you might look at the same sort of circumstances and see two different reactions to them. You could see the same sort of circumstances where one person a, with a cheerful disposition who has lots of good experiences in his life might say, oh, I'm sure that all things are going to work out, Okay? They're going to work out for good. That's, that's human hope. 
That's the hope of this world. It's kind of just based on disposition and experience. Same person, uh, sorry, a different person might look at the same events and say, oh, woe is me. Nothing is going to work out. None of this is going to come to fruition. It's all going to be helpless or hopeless. That's sort of the person who's had the, the bad experience of life. But this is, this is the human version of hope. This is often what the world means. And if we're not careful, it's often what we can mean when we use the word hope. That's not biblical hope. The reality of that is we find, if that's our hope, we find that experience of life is an evil taskmaster, okay? And what I mean by that is as life goes on, we realize that that hope actually isn't hope at all. If you live life long enough, and if you only have human hope, you will find that that hope will ultimately turn into hopelessness, that there's, there's absolutely nothing there, that you will go day after day and you'll we'll say, oh, t- tomorrow will be better, but you will find that eventually that hope will disappoint, okay? That's not what Paul's speaking about. He's actually comparing the two ideas. He says, Abraham hoped against that hope, not the human hope, not the things that he saw with his eyes, but he hoped with a hope in God. This is the hope now that Paul will move on to describe. It is the hope that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as, as Paul begins to describe this faith in Christ, or as he uses the word hope here. It's very interesting the, the way that he characterizes it. And the, and the one thing I want to caution you with, when we speak about a faith in Christ, saving faith, we must be very careful that we don't accept this definition. This is a kind of worldly definition, that faith is simply a blind belief, or it is an ignorant or illogical conclusion, okay? I've spoken to many people who say, I, I can't have faith in Christ because if you ask me to have faith in Christ, essentially you're telling me to shut off my brain and to close my eyes, right? Uh, and, and that's not what Paul's describing here at all about godly hope, okay? It's not what he's describing here. Essentially what he's describing here, let me, I want to draw on the picture. Uh, Paul has been telling us all along that um, God gives the believer, the child of God, he gives him faith, it is a gift of God. So he gives us faith so that we then can trust him. Often in the Old Testament, uh, I drew a heart because often in the Old Testament, this is portrayed as a new heart. I'll give you a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, right? That's the promise that, that God makes through the prophet. And so uh, it's, it's portrayed as a new heart. Essentially what the Apostle Paul is saying is that, that uh, faith in Christ is not turning off your eyes and shutting off your brain and saying, I don't care, um, I'm going to be illogical. What faith in Christ is, is we receive a new sense, it's kind of the way that Paul's describing it, isn't it? We, re- we receive a new sense, and when we receive the sense of faith, forgot to write this, faith is primarily geared towards the promises of God, okay? So faith isn't so much about the things that are happening out and about around us. It's not uh, primarily evaluating those things. Faith is rooted in the promises of God. And so the way that Paul's describing faith is that faith is not illogical, but rather it's one sense overriding another sense. Okay? It is the gift of faith that is saying, yes, your eyes and ears may say this, but the promises of God say that. Right? And then the gift of faith, as faith is strengthened, faith grows, and we're able to trust the promises of God even when they contradict maybe what other senses are doing or saying. I'll give you an example of this, and I'll show you in the passage. I was thinking about this this morning. It's kind of like those times where you are, you're in your house or your apartment, and you hear something, and you're like, oh, I know what that is. Okay, I can tell what that is just from the sound. Sometimes this happens in our house. We're like, oh, man, the kids are banging on the walls. 
I know they're banging on the walls. And you go and it's like, oh, no, they're not banging on the walls. Like something else is happening, okay? And you see with your eyes and you're able to make a better conclusion, okay? What you heard and you thought was true was not actually true when you saw it. This is how Paul's describing faith, okay? Not that our eyes are not important and our ears are not important, but faith through the promises of God is saying, I have seen something better, more clear. I have seen something that is more true, and it helps me then to evaluate the things that I see and hear. Look at how this happens with Abraham. Look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. First of all, I love how this is written in the Greek when it's describing Abraham's conclusion here. It says when he, in Greek, it actually says when he considered his own body already having been dead. And I, I, I like that. The English is having a hard time capturing this idea that Abraham is saying, my body's dead. Right? So it uses this phrase, which was as good as dead. But I, I love that description. It's as if Abraham is standing there saying, hey, man, my body's dead. Uh, and sometimes you might feel like that, right? I, as we get older, I think we all kind of feel like that. But, and then in parentheses, uh, since he was about 100 years old. Okay, Abraham, essentially what's happening with Abraham is that Abraham was given the gift of faith. Remember this from Genesis 15. Abraham, given the gift of faith by God, it says that by faith uh, he was accounted as righteous. And then as the life of Abraham moves on and God makes these promises to him, what essentially Paul's saying is that he is seeing with his eyes and hearing with his ears and and maybe even evaluating his mind and saying, "This this is impossible to have a child right now. My, I, am, I am dead, or as good as dead, however you want to phrase that. And my wife, she's well past her childbearing years. Uh, I imagine Sarah's probably the, about the same age at this time, so I don't know, is she 30 or 40 or 50 years past being able to have children? We don't know exactly. But Abraham's saying, my eyes and my ears are saying, this is impossible. But having been given the gift of faith, receiving the promises of God, Abraham was able to say, hoping against hope, able to say, the promises of God are true. And I, and I believe them even more than I believe what I'm seeing with my eyes or hearing with my ears. This is what the Apostle Paul is beginning to describe as the nature of saving faith. That Abraham did not allow the things that he saw to have weight. He did not fix his own mind on the difficulties of his situation. That the faith that God had given him, which perceived and received his promises, it caused him to overrule the verdict of his other sen- senses. Uh, To say, yes, I see, and yes, I hear, but I reject what I'm receiving from that, and and instead I rest upon the promises of God. That is the nature of saving faith. You you may be sitting here and saying, okay, well, that's great, um, but that's, that's not the faith that I have. My faith is weak. I, I receive the promises of God, but when I see things and I hear things, I, I'm tempted. I'm drawn away from the promises of God. I doubt the promises of God. Maybe that's your experience. And I think to, to one degree or another, all of us has that experience. We, we wrestle with our own faith. One author put it like this. The mind is never so enlightened that there are no remains of ignorance, nor the heart so established that there are no misgivings, with these evils of our nature, faith maintains a perpetual conflict, okay? It's a, a perpetual conflict. But let's, let's talk about that for a second. That's the second point. Uh, uh, how is our faith strengthened, okay? How is faith strengthened? If we say 
We are weak in faith and we need our faith to be strengthened. How is faith strengthened? So one very real answer to that question is the entire New Testament is an answer to that question. If you ever wondered why does John or Peter or Paul, why do they write their epistles? Why do they write to these churches? The primary function of the epistles is for the strengthening of faith. And so when they write these things and they're speaking about um, here's how you ought to live and, and these are spiritual disciplines and these are the things not to do, they are essentially saying here's the things that will strengthen your faith and here's the things that will weaken your faith. Do those things, don't do those things. Right? And so Paul will say uh, to his listeners, he will say pray, pray for one another. Uh, immerse yourself in the word of God. Right? Sing together. Uh, do not neglect uh, the fellowship of the saints. And he will say, don't do the other things, a lust and greed and idolatry and immorality. These are the things that will weaken your faith. You see, there's an intimate connection between our sanctification and, and, and the growing of our faith, right? As we, as we grow in holiness and the Lord sanctifies us, our faith is strengthened, right? When we are moving away from that and doing the things which are like the, the deeds of the flesh, that diminishes, it weakens our faith, okay? And so we're talking about strengthening the faith muscle, Right? So the New Testament epistles speak to that, but look also what this passage says. Very interesting, verse 20. There's, a, there's an example here of the things that strengthen our faith. Look at what it says in verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. Let's just stop for a second here, okay? No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. Essentially, Paul is saying that as, as the life of Abraham went on, his faith continued to grow, that his, his faith in God was strengthened. And you can see that in the life of Abraham. As you read and you pick up with Abraham in Genesis 12, you'll see a different Abraham in Genesis 15. Okay, and then as you read, you see his, his faith being strengthened. So we, we could say that he began with childlike faith, which is where we all begin. And then his faith in the Lord was strengthened. So much so, remember this, he, God says, uh, uh, give me your only son Isaac. And remember what Abraham does. We talked about this last week. He doesn't say, okay, I'm a robot, I'll, I'll blindly do whatever you tell me to do, I'm, I'm obedient. But he says in faith that he will give his son Isaac. The writer of Hebrews, I, I, I mentioned this last week, the writer of Hebrews says, he believed God could raise Isaac from the dead, okay? So he was going on the mountain, having the faith of his heart strengthened, growing in faith, taking his son and saying, I, I know that somehow Isaac's coming back to me. Because God made a promise, right? And so we see the growing faith of Abraham throughout his life. But look at what the passage says. Okay, the, the, word, um, the word there, it grows in strength. The word strength is the Greek word uh, dunamos. And if you've ever studied Greek vocabulary, that might be one of the first words you learn. It's the uh, Greek word from which we get our English word dynamite, all right? And everybody loves to kind of emphasize that point because it's a powerful word. It's a vigorous word. It's potent. It, it has energy. Es essentially, Paul is saying that, that uh, Abraham's faith was full of vigor and energy. It was growing and being strengthened. But look at how it was strengthened. Again in verse 20. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. I, I find that interesting. You may have quickly read over that, but... Pay attention to the relationship there. It doesn't say that, that his faith was strengthened and as a result he gave glory to God. It doesn't say that, uh, 
these things happen simultaneously. What it says is that his faith was strengthened and the as there is an as of, of, uh, of uh, a connection of purpose or of, of causation, okay? So that is to say his faith grew strong by giving glory to God or through giving glory to God. That's the connection between those two phrases. The phrase gave glory to God is actually written, it's, a, it's written in the aorist tense. It's a, it's a participial word, okay? And you're like, what is an aorist participle? Well, I'll tell you, aorist means past tense. Participle means ongoing action. We often translate participles with ing because ing words seem to be ongoing, don't they? So what this means is Abraham gave glory to God in the past and in an ongoing way. Here's the way actually maybe this, this verse ought to be translated. His faith grew strong having given glory to God and continuing to give glory to God, okay? That his faith grew strong through his continual giving glory to God. That's amazing to me. It's so interesting. You, you might ask the question, uh, why? Why does Abraham's faith grow strong as he gives glory to God? Well, let me read this quote to you from John Calvin, and then we could talk about it. I think Calvin captures the idea very well. He says this, let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same as that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We're surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sin. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us. Outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things that are connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. See what he's saying? He's making the point that we have faith in the promises of God, but those things, uh, the, our faith in the promises of God is often in contradiction to everything that we're immersed in in this world. Right? He's saying God promises immortality, but all around us is mortality. We're going to live forever, but all we see is death. He promises us that we'll be saved, but all we see is sin. He, he promises us that he is good towards us, and, and yet all we see is the wrath of God. Okay? So Calvin is making the point that it is necessary for the believer then to be immersed in something else that they be reminded that their senses and the perception of the things of this world are always leading them away from God. That's essentially what Calvin was saying this morning. So here's the argument. When we do what Paul is saying in this passage, we give glory to God. When we give glory to God, essentially we are making a confession. We are confessing to God, God, for seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, for all the years of my life, my senses are drawing me away from you. And I am seeing and hearing and thinking and feeling and tasting and smelling things that will tell me that the promises of God are not true. My confession is that that is who I am and where I am at, and I need to be reoriented. I need to be immersed in the truth of God. I need to see more of the promises of God. I need to give glory to God, and in so doing, I will see more of him. Okay? And, and that's what Paul is saying, essentially, Abraham did. As he gave glory to God, his faith 
was strengthened. The faith muscle of Abraham grew as he gave God glory. Listen, I'll just give you one point of practical application, then we'll move to the last point here. Uh, oftentimes, people will ask me, well, they don't so much ask me as they tell me. They say, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church, okay? I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church, all right? I hear that often. Sometimes it's a question, usually it's a statement. And, uh, and oftentimes, as I hear that, I'm thinking two things. Okay, you are mixing up two things. Yes, you do not need to go to church to be saved. It's true, right? Let's not act as if it's not true. It, it doesn't say, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and go to church and you will be saved, okay? It doesn't say that, okay? So to be saved, you do not have to go to church. But do you realize that the prescription of the living God for his people is that through the fellowship of believers, as we gather together, this is his primary design that this is where we will be fed. This is where faith, which is the gift of God, which is in contradiction to the things we often see in the world, this is where faith is nurtured. It's where faith is fed. And, and, and so it, in one sense, it is necessary as a believer that you be part of a church because you need for your faith muscle to be strengthened. You need to be encouraged. And you might be wondering, how does that happen? It happens in everything we do. Every Sunday morning together. You're standing here singing. If you pause for a second and listen to other people singing, you realize you, your faith will grow as you hear believers singing around you. And as you're prayed for, and as you pray for others, and as you confess your sin, and as you hear the reading of the word and the preaching of the word, and as you confess the worthiness of God and your unworthiness, as you do all of that together, your faith is strengthened. Dunamis, it grows, it becomes powerful. If you're a young person, I would encourage you to think about young people. You're going like, to grow up and leave your home at some point. You'll go to college or go to work, whatever you're going to do. I think for many young people, you think, ah, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to go to church. I just want to encourage you that, that everything you do in life is pedagogical. It is forming you in one way or another, right? And, and, and all of life is not neutral. Neither is faith neutral. If you neglect the fellowship of the believers, I can guarantee you your faith will be diminished. It'll be weakened. But if you join yourself together with other believers, you will find your faith being strengthened through all the ordinary means of grace. This is what happens with Abraham. He gave glory to God and his faith was strengthened. Here's the last point. It's very simple. Uh, what is the object of our faith? This is, this is obvious. You should see it in the text. The object of our faith. We ought to make the point that we're not talking about simply faith, just a generic faith. We're not talking about faith in the good things of life or faith in some greater being. That's not what the Bible speaks about when it speaks about faith. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in verse 24. Okay, so chapter 4, verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The Apostle Paul has done this like a hundred times and he will continue to do it. He, he will make clear that we understand who is the object of our faith because a faith is only as good as the object that it has faith in. Would you agree? You would agree. Okay, good. You could say yes. You may have a strong faith, but if your faith is in something that, that will not help you, that offers you no power, no support, 
that will not change the outcome of your life, then your faith is ultimately empty, right? The object of faith makes all of the difference. The Apostle Paul will tell us the object of our faith is crucial for an understanding of what we're doing as believers. Now, the thing I wanted to point out is this, very simply. Whenever the Bible talks about faith, it talks about faith in at least the two persons of the Trinity. Now, the Holy Spirit is always at work. We know that, sort of in the background, causing us to have faith. Uh, but, but Paul is going to make clear again and again, this involves both God the Father and God the Son. Okay, our faith, look at what he says there in verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him, that's God the Father, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, that's God the Son. Okay, there's, there's two parts to that. God the Father, God the Son. It's essentially the same thing that Paul will say later in Romans 10. Remember this passage, we're going to memorize it later when we get there. But in Romans 10, it was very simple. If you confess with your mouth Jesus the Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see that there, Christ the Son and God the Father. Confess with your mouth Christ, that's the Son, his Lord, and believe in your heart that God, that's the Father, raised him from the dead, you will be saved, okay? So let's be clear then. The faith that Paul's describing is not simply faith in a God, a generic version of God, and nor is it simply like, I like Jesus and I like the things he taught, okay? What Paul will continue to tell us, it is faith in God the Father who gave his only son and died for our sins that we would believe in him, Father and Son, and be saved. Resting and relying upon him, hoping against human hope, believing the promises of God to be fulfilled through the Son, Jesus Christ, for our redemption. That is the faith that the Apostle Paul delivers to us this morning. Let me tell you, just as a conclusion here, this is why Paul will emphasize these things. He has been trying over and over again, desperately in the epistle to the Romans, to make it clear that our faith is the same as Abraham's faith. He has said over and over again, let's not disconnect these. Abraham's not different than you. He came uncircumcised, and he believed in faith. You come as Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles, you believe in faith. Same faith as Abraham. Now he is making it clear. Abraham's faith is in the, in the same God that we have faith in. Not two different versions of God. Not in two different ways. Abraham had faith in the Father God. And in the future Messiah, the Savior. He didn't know the details of it, but he had faith. We now have faith in God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. And it is in this that we are saved. Essentially, this, the message this morning, the ongoing message in Romans will be this, is the gift of faith. It's not that we're the product of our circumstances or that we were born into Christian homes or non-Christian homes. It is not that we simply are the victims of the culture that we live in. The truth is that God gives you a new sense. He gives us the gift of faith that moves us to trust the promises of God even when they contradict the things that we see with our eyes and hear with our ears. Faith in God the Father and his son Jesus Christ that he raised him from the dead and he died for our sins that we also might have life. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you uh, that you have loved us so much that you gave your only son, may we, Lord, be convicted and convinced that, that you are God, you the Father, and your son, Jesus Christ, God, very God of very God. May we be convinced 
that you are the one who has authored and ordained all things that come to pass, including this plan of redemption. That you sent your son in the course of time, that he faithfully carried out the plan to die for our sin, our sins, and that he rose again over the grave, and that in him, by faith, we may be saved. I pray for anyone who's here this morning who has not had faith in Christ, would you give them the gift? Would you give them a new sense that they might see the promises that you have given and trust those promises? Would you help us who have had faith in you? Would you grow our faith? Would you, by the ordinary means that you have ordained through our fellowship and through our singing and prayer and the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, may you work, Lord God, to grow our faith in you. That we, like Abraham, could hear your promises and trust them even when everything else is saying no. We thank you that you have loved us so much and we ask, dear Father, that all of this would be for your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray, amen.